Well, it's good to be with you. <clears throat> the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been studying all things concerning the crucifixion and the resurrection. And um, we had to kind of speed through that. And ironically, it was right about where we were in our current study in the book of Luke. But we had to kind of flip some things around. So the last couple of weeks, it's kind of been a synopsis. And so this morning, <clears throat> we're going to go back and pick up some of, those, some of those details. I think you'll find it interesting. And I hope above and beyond interesting, you'll find it compelling. Uh, because it certainly is a compelling story. It's something that Hollywood can never make up. And um, it's, uh, so, so we're going to get there really quickly. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And God, you're beautiful and wonderful. You have never disappointed us, God, although we have continued to disappoint you. You've been faithful, you've been kind, and you have certainly been tender. And Lord, we are, uh, <clears throat> we are indebted to you. And I, I, my prayer is that this study will help us even more so to appreciate all that you did. From God the Father of sacrificing your Son, from God the Son sacrificing himself, and God the Holy Spirit, Lord, leading people to you <clears throat> and to salvation. So, Lord, uh, we pray that you will be within this study today. May the words of man fall away and your word remain. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to set the stage for the most dramatic event that ever took place in all of human history. And this event, by the way, was ordained long before time began. This event is epic in its scope as it involves all of creation and divinity. And the participants include servants and slaves, governors and kings, and soldiers and priests. So I would like for you just to pretend for a moment <clears throat> that we are in a hot air balloon. I don't know if any of you have ever taken a hot air balloon ride. I have not, but it seems like it would be really peaceful. But I just, if, if we can pretend we're in a hot air balloon and we are about a thousand feet in the sky, up in the sky, and we are over the city of Jerusalem. So we have a bird's eye view of everything that's taking place. We have a, we have a bird's eye view of the surrounding countryside. We have a bird's eye view of the city of Jerusalem and the temple within the city of Jerusalem. And if we were in that hot air balloon and we had that view, we would see upwards of one to two million people gathered. <clears throat> they're gathered for, for one reason, and the reason they're gathered is because it is Passover feast, festival. This happens every year, of course. And you would see in this one or two million people, you would see within those people the following fact. They are celebrating something that released them from bondage many, many years previously from the, from the king or the pharaoh of Egypt. And now they are in Jerusalem under 
the rule, once again, of a foreign nation, and this time it's Rome. So we're in the 1,000 feet <clears throat> looking down, 1 to 2 million people, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and it would just be dotted and sometimes concentrated with humanity. But there's another gathering going on outside of Jerusalem. Um, we're not sure exactly where, but it's called the Skull. We call it Golgotha. And there's another crowd gathering there, maybe upwards of one to 2,000, maybe more. And if we then <clears throat> were to look closely, we would see in the midst of that gathering a single stake that we are concerned with driven into the ground. And upon that stake is nailed Jesus of Nazareth. And if we were to begin then to descend on that scene, we would begin to hear many different things. Now, along with these millions and these thousands and that one man on the stake, on the cross, there are more participants than that. And those participants are hidden from view. There is a dragon who is enraged, doing everything in his power to take that man off the cross before he dies. And his motive for doing this, by the way, <clears throat> has nothing to do with love, and it has nothing to do with justice. It's because he hates this man, and the dragon's kingdom is at stake. The dragon and his army are swirling around this scene, unseen to the people who are making this happen. But he's helpless to prevent this man's death. He's enraged, and he's frantic, and he is desperate. There is yet another kingdom involved in this drama. The father of this man is seated in heaven, watching all that is taking place. He is observing his son. His son is suffering at the hands of those he came to save. His father hears every word spoken, he hears every nail that is driven and every insult that is hurled at his son. And all of heaven is looking upon this tiny speck of ground where in a few hours the greatest act of love and redemption will forever change the world at the greatest price ever paid. God, thank you again for this. We cannot begin to fathom the pain and the suffering, the sight and the smell of death. And yet we see victory. Amen. So just in case we missed it, <clears throat> the entire universe is gathered for this moment. And we must also make it clear that there is no battle taking place here. It's not war. It's not the final battle that God wins, God has already won the battle. So there's no battle here. It's never been a question about what was going to happen. God the Father had ordained that God the Son 
would suffer upon the cross, becoming the final sacrifice for all who would receive him. And we have our first prophecy of this moment in Genesis 3.15. All the way back to Genesis, which we consider the beginning, was not the beginning for God, of course. But this is where God begins to be seen. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve have already sinned in the garden. They've already tried hiding from God. <clears throat> God has sought them. They didn't seek God. God has sought them, and he has found them. He always knew where they were, but he has finally confronted them. And he asks these questions, why are you hiding from me? We will not get into all of that. But the end result of this in Genesis 3.15 is this. I will put enmity between you, and he's talking to Satan right now, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring is Jesus. And he shall crush your head. The ESV says bruise your head. But most other uh, translations say he will crush your head. That would be at the resurrection. And you shall bruise his heel. And that would be what Christ is currently going through, his suffering on the cross. Now we have viewed the activity that surrounded the cross from a distance. Through the scriptures we will now observe these same things up close. Now as we have stated before, Jesus, Simon of Cyrene, and two thieves were making their way to Golgotha. And everyone who was there knew where Golgotha was, and they knew that any time anyone was marching there, it was to end their lives in a painful way. Jesus had been beaten nearly beyond recognition. It was now about 8.30 in the morning. By 9 o'clock, he would be nailed to the cross, and the cross would be raised and dropped into a hole in the ground. <clears throat> and the thieves were placed on either side of him in the agonizing process of a slow and brutal execution begins. Now Luke, in chapter 23, says this, Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, uh, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Crucifixion describes a type of execution. It does not describe the execution and the death. So the, the, the soldiers have completed their task, which was to crucify them and then let nature, for lack of a better term, take its course. Now, in the next verse, we read that it was at this time that Jesus spoke his first words from the cross, and they were not words of condemnation, nor were they words to appeal for sympathy or regret. You are very familiar with these. Luke 23, 34 says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, these words fell upon deaf ears. However, there were at least two that heard those words. God heard those words from heaven and said, Amen, so be it. The dragon heard these words and cursed. And from that moment on, for the next three hours, there's almost a carnival-like atmosphere taking place surrounding the cross. 
We have some accounts of this. Luke 23, 34, they cast lots to divide his garments. Now John goes into a little more detail. John 19, 23 says this, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. So now we know there were four soldiers, thanks to John's account. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. This took great skill. So this was woven, one piece, woven with arms, openings, and cover, and to cover. So they said to one another, these are the soldiers, uh, let's not tear this, it's, it's valuable. So they cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now this was in part to fill the scripture, fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now in the book of Mark we read the following, Mark 15, 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, will now save yourself and come down from the cross. Verse 31, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, this is interesting, to one another. It's not that they weren't heard by others, but they wanted to mock him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Well, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. By the way, this is a reference to a statement Christ made when he was challenged for clearing the temple during his first year of ministry. We find this in John 2, beginning with verse 18. It says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, how can we know you have the authority to do what you've just done? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now they dismissed his words as if they were words of a fool, a madman, a lunatic. They could make no sense out of these words. And they were still missing the point today, this morning at the, at the crucifixion. Well, Luke gives us more of an account in verse 35, and the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him. They were saying the same thing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, meaning the anointed one, if he is the anointed one of God, his chosen one, can you kind of hear how they might be saying that as a half smirk and laugh and give the expression of, eh, that's, that's what I picture. They were saying this, and of course all of this was said to mock him. They were jeering and laughing and spitting and gesturing. We go on in Luke. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, 
save yourself. We know of at least four soldiers. Those four soldiers were quite possibly doing that. These soldiers were calloused and dead in the heart for the time being. They had seen this movie before. They knew how it ended and they were disconnected of the inhumanity they had created. This was nothing more than a duty for which they were chosen. All of this was the fulfillment of prophecy. I'd like to read for you very briefly out of Psalm 22 beginning in verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that is very detailed. Even in Psalms, it predicted that they would tear some of the garments and give them away, but the other one, which was the, uh, the tunic, they would actually barter that off. So even in Psalms, so many years ago, had it right. If you want to read a wrenching account of the crucifixion from Christ's perspective, read Psalm 22. It's not very long. It's... Um, it's difficult read, but it's a wonderful read. <clears throat> Luke 23, 38. There was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. This too was mockery by Pilate. However, that did get the attention of the religious elites. They didn't like it. They wanted to make sure that no one paid God or Jesus any honor. And probably most importantly, they wanted to make it understood that they were not the ones who had heralded him as a king of the Jews. Verse 20 in John 19, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests read this. They were upset about it. So they went to Pilate, verse 21, said, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. They were immediately put in their place by Pilate. This was his response. What I have written, I have written. It's a double positive in the sense that once someone said that, it was the same as there's just no way I'm going to change this. So Pilate tried to wash his hands of it early on. He's trying to wash his hands of this act now. It's not that he was courageous. He was fearful. He was fearful of what would happen if a riot ensued. He was fearful of the arm of Rome. Then we read in Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, that word railed means to subject to verbal abuse or to use abusive language. I'm sure he was not respectful to Christ as he said those things. Probably yelled those things, jeering. 
Then we read in the next verse, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to look at this for just a minute. This is the perfect example of someone going from being their own God, transitioning to receiving Christ. This thief on the cross did everything that was needed. He first of all said to a witness, which was that other thief, directly to him, do you not fear God? What he was saying is, I fear God, and this is God. And we indeed justly, so we confess our sins, we confess our need, we indeed justly are being tried, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And so this thief, just like we have to say, is we understand what we deserve if we do not receive Jesus Christ because we have these sins. And whatever that punishment is, we shouldn't complain about it. Then he looks at this, and then he's thinking of Jesus, says, but this man has done nothing wrong. So he's declaring Jesus innocent. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life to come to Jesus into heaven. And he recognizes him as holding the keys to heaven. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's just a beautiful example of what goes on in the heart of someone that begins to reject the world and then receive Christ. Then in John 19, we read the following in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, meaning John, Behold your mother. And we read this, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So all of this took place during the first three hours of his execution. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. The chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. The rulers scoffed at him. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. They divided his robe. Uh, for themselves and auctioned off the tunic. There was also an, ins an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. For the first three hours, this is what took place. And other than asking his father to forgive his murderers and welcoming a repentant thief into paradise and giving John charge of his mother, he remained silent and took upon himself, their abuse. Three hours, he remained silent. From nine to noon, Jesus endured the abuse, humiliation, and the physical pain of dying a slow and agonizing death. But it gets worse. I would like to direct your attention to the following verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 1, says this, And to whom 
has the term of the Lord, I'm sorry, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom man hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. This is Isaiah, many years before the crucifixion. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This is describing him on the cross, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, <clears throat> And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. These final scriptures are very important. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, take many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their sins. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, meaning sinners, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do these words sound familiar? We just read them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason I bring these scriptures to you is that unless we have some kind of an understanding of what is about to take place and what has taken place during those three hours, we cannot really fully understand what's coming. So the next three hours of the crucifixion, they go from noon to 3 p.m. So the first three hours is from 9 to noon, and the final three hours from noon to 3 couple more readings. Psalm 18, verse 7 says this, Then the earth reeled and rocked, 
The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Why? Because he was angry. He's talking about God. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. In Joel, we have a similar reading. The earth quakes before them and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. We will see the same thing in the end times in Revelation. There will be a time when the heavens will be rolled up like a carpet. No sun, no moon, no stars. The reason these scriptures are important today is we see there is a consistency in how God expresses his anger. Mount Sinai was similar. There are other scriptures we could cite as well. It might be a good study for you to do that. So back to our story at Calvary. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Verse 45. While the sun's light failed. Nine to noon, high noon. The sun is at the apex, the pinnacle of the sky. It's how they told time back then. And everything goes dark. So just to review, Christ is on the cross and there's a carnival type atmosphere all around him. Jesus says very little while the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leadership, and hundreds of others mock him and then suddenly God turns out the lights, the lights of heaven. And he keeps them out for three hours. So let's make sure we understand this. High noon, sun is directly overhead, and it suddenly disappears. Some have claimed this was nothing more than an eclipse. This doesn't make sense in that the Passover celebrations were centered around full moons. And this darkness lasted for three hours. So if the sun is darkened, is the moon reflecting light? Are the stars reflecting its light? How dark was it? It happened at high noon. How many people had lanterns? while they were watching this spectacle. How was the temple in Jerusalem lighted? There are thousands of people in Jerusalem and the temple, upwards many thousands, thousands watching the crucifixion, and suddenly it is pitch black. We read Psalm 18, verse 7, Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. The earthquake comes later. God the Father was there and he was angry. The sun disappeared and for three hours he poured his wrath upon who? Who did he pour his wrath upon? Pilate deserved it. The religious elites deserved it. 
The Roman soldiers deserved it. Herod deserved it. Annas and Caiaphas deserved it. Sanhedrin deserved it. Those who mocked him deserved it. And you and I deserved it. However, we see that he poured his wrath upon the only one who did not deserve it. He poured it upon Jesus, his son. Who would have made such a decision? Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, meaning the wrath. Upon him was the wrath that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So let's make sure we fully understand the significance of this where it concerns us in the year 2020. For those of us who have repented of our sin and received Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, part of the agony Christ experienced from the wrath of His Father had your name on it, had my name on it. For three hours, Jesus paid for the sin of millions of people, past, present, and future. As he paid for that sin, his father not only punished him, not for what he had done, but because all of the sin of those who would receive him were within him, he not only punished him, he turned his face away from him. Now we've heard these words before. But this is compelling. And by the way, God turning his face away from his son is something we will never experience from God. As believers, he will never, ever turn his face away from us. For three hours, all of Jerusalem, and probably at the very least, all of Judea, was in utter darkness. My guess is the world was in utter darkness. Had you been there, would this have gotten your attention? Three hours is a long time with absolutely no light. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Well, at the end of that three-hour time frame, what then? Well, Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. This takes place at the close of God's judgment upon him. His final cry after three hours of suffering 
as he pays for the final sins and his father has not yet comforted him. It's significant. Many of us can withstand agony and pain if we receive comfort from others. Three hours of agony and pain, not only taking the sins of those who would receive him, who have received him, but being punished and having the wrath of God poured out on him and God turned his face away. Now we pick up some more of the story in John 19, 30. It says this, after this, and 28, I'm sorry, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and he did this to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I'm thinking about that. Six hours on the cross, being beaten beyond recognition, having been awake for at least for 30 hours, 36 hours, hanging on a cross, absorbing our sins, and receiving the wrath of God, being uncomforted by God, not comforted at all. And he says, it is finished. Before that, he says a simple, I thirst. And finally, he says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So what happens when God dies on the cross? That is not the end of the story. And of course, we know about the resurrection. But in between Christ's death on the cross and the resurrection, some amazing things begin to happen. Matthew 27, 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you want to connect these two things, I think it's a good thing. The tunic that Jesus was wearing was the same tunic that the priesthood wore. And so, he was Christ at the very beginning when, when, when he's on the cross, the first thing he says is, for God, for, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He exercised his priestly office. At that point, he began to intercede between the people and his Father. He exercised that priestly office. And they did not tear that robe, that tunic. And now we are at the end of the suffering. And when he finally says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How was the tunic made from top to bottom? So we need to stop here and piece it together. At the time the lambs were to be sacrificed upon the altar in the temple, the true perfect sacrificial lamb sacrificed himself on the cross. And at that precise moment, the priests who were at the entrance of the holy place hear a tearing or ripping sound 
and to their shock and terror, the veil dividing the Holy of Holies from the holy place was ripped in half from top to bottom. Now, a little bit about this veil. The size and thickness of the curtain ensured that no one would accidentally fall into the Holy of Holies. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies only once a year, and tradition says they tied a rope around his waist, and he would go in and make, <clears throat> make an offering, a splash, sprinkle blood, and then he would walk back out of the Holy of Holies. The reason the rope was tied around his waist is in case he died in there, anyone else that would go in to retrieve him would just automatically be killed. So they tied this, ro uh, this rope around his waist so they could pull him out. They were so aware of this. According to God's plan when they built that temple, he said, make a veil, and differing Different authors have different versions of how thick this veil is. <clears throat> one said one inch, another said four inch. I've even heard a foot. But if it were one inch thick, and it's 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide, it would weigh several tons. Now, I found that really hard to believe. But there's actually an account of when they took the, when they took the veil in, it took 300 priests to carry it and to manipulate it. So they knew that if someone accidentally fell and went against this veil, if the veil did not stop them, they would fall into the Holy of Holies, and of course they would die. So in verse 50, we see that the veil is torn. In verse 51, it says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. We go on to read this in 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion those and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So we have to stop here this morning. And we will continue with the study next week. We will spend some time in Hebrews next week, in the book of Hebrews, to help us more fully understand the temple and why that was so shocking. Can you imagine being one of the priests and you're preparing the, the, the altar and the temple for the beginning of the sacrifice of the Paschal lambs? There are thousands of lambs, and it was almost an assembly line. And just as you are preparing these things, everything goes dark for three hours. At noon, it goes dark for three hours. For three hours, they can't see what they're doing. I'm sure they lit torches, and they kind of they did whatever they could. But to them, the crucifixion was a distraction. Maybe, it may have even been annoying. But at the end of those three hours, can you imagine being the priests in the temple court, in the inner court, preparing next to the temple itself, and you're preparing the altar, and suddenly the rocks shake, and the veil in the temple tears, divides itself. How frightening would that have been if you were a priest? Everything has changed. Everything has changed. They don't get it. 
Christ had just put to the grave the system, the priests, Sanhedrin, and the attorneys, the scribes, the charlatans. These things are so very significant for us today. I think what hit me the hardest was the part where it said, the agony of Christ experienced from the wrath of his Father. Some of it had my name on it. How grateful should we be? We need to come to grips with this so that we are grateful for his sacrifice. Now, there's only one thing that Jesus agonizes over more. Those who reject him are lost forever. Final two scriptures, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Ezekiel 33.11 is even more compelling. Say to them, as surely as I live, decrees the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You might. I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn with an exclamation point. Turn from your evil ways. Exclamation point. Why will you die? He says, O house of Israel, and I think he's saying to us, those of you who don't know the Lord, why would you die without salvation? It's a good question. If you've thought many, many times about Christ, and you've thought many, many times about salvation, and you've thought many, many times as to whether it's worth it, or you've thought many, many times, I'm going to do that someday, you are all in the mind, and you are under, uh, you are within the sight of God. And he says, why would you die without salvation? Can I encourage you to receive Christ? That thief on the cross, he acknowledged who Jesus was, he repented. He acknowledged that Christ held the keys to his kingdom and that Christ was the only way into that kingdom. You need to acknowledge those things. This is how you do it. Lord Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And I believe you know my name. And I believe you want me. So Lord, I, I surrender. I acknowledge who you are. And I acknowledge that you hold the keys to your kingdom, which is heaven. And I do not want to die without salvation.